Good morning. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you turn to um, Ephesians. We're in the middle of a series uh, in the book of Ephesians, which is like, I think it's, one of the, I think it's the most profound, simple, clear uh, exposition of Paul's understanding of what this is all about. And, uh, and so it's good to be, it's good to be in, in this. Today is, and, and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Today is Father's Day, um, and uh, my family were ready for Father's Day, which was not always been the case, but they, they were ready because they thought last week was Father's Day, and they panicked on Saturday night of last weekend, um, and, and, and they were ready, um, uh, and I got, I got luggage. I'm not really sure whether that's a message. <laughs> Uh, but I, but I, I did, and Esther, Esther gave me a card. It was rude. I can't tell you what was said on the front of it, but she, she told me about the card that she nearly bought me. The card that she nearly bought me said this on the front. When I grow up, I want to be as funny as you think you are. <laughs> um, Golly. Uh, so I'm supposed to start sermons with funny stories to get you interested, but here's the thing, after 15 years, I've got nothing funny left, um, and probably the stuff I said before wasn't funny anyway. Um, but Ephesians chapter 5, we're in the Word of God, and there's some really profound stuff that we just happen to stumble on as we get to this, this point. Ephesians chapter 5 starts with our reality as children of God. And in Ephesians chapter 5, 20, it ends with God being our Father. It starts with us being children of God, and it concludes with God being our Father. And before we get into any of the teaching, um, it's important for us to recognize that you have a Father. Whether you have a Father, you have a Father. Um, and your Heavenly Father is, is not the reflection of of earthly fatherhood. He's the perfection of fatherhood, which means that if you let him, he wants to father you. There is nothing coming down the track at you that compares to this. And when I say that he's the perfection of fatherhood, what I mean is this, he perfectly protects you in a way that nothing else and no one else can. He perfectly provides for you in a way that nothing else or no one else can. He perfectly provokes you into your best life in a way that nothing or no one else can. And before we were even in the Word of God, some of you maybe even came to church just to hear that today. And the thing is that Paul has spent the whole, if you like, of his letter to the Ephesians building up to a point when he's going to talk about what it means to live a life worthy of this father. He's been saying, do you truly get who you are? Not just get who you are, gnosis, but get who you are, epignosis. Do you really understand how loved you are? that you are a son or a daughter of the Father, that you are loved by Jesus Christ and died for and adopted into a family, that you are full of the Holy Spirit, that the same power 
that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and that he's building a family. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, do you understand this stuff? That the family that he's building is called the church. The Greek word is ekklesia, the called out ones, the gathered together and scattered ones who represent the king and his kingdom who say there is a different way to live this life. And do you understand that this kingdom is a kingdom of love? Aggressive, invasive love. Love that is so high, you can't get over it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Love that comes from heaven. Love that reaches down to the deepest parts. Love that is so wide that you never meet anybody who is outside of the, of the remit of, of God's love. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And then Paul says in Ephesians 4, chapter, verse 1, he says, Live a life worthy of all that. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received from a father. And, 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 and what he's saying is you can live a life worthy of that, which is huge. It's not some kind of insurmountable possibility. It's you can live a life you with your dysfunctions and your insecurities and your uncertainties and your sin and your shame and your blame, you can live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it in Scripture as a command. And so this morning, I'll, I'll speak quickly because I have a lot to say. A perspective that will make your life, a question that will save your life, and a key that will unlock your life. Take notes, this is good. I can say that because I'm not doing this again. This is good. The perspective that will change your life is this. Write this down. Bad days make good opportunities. Bad days make good opportunities. In, in fact, let's get all American and Pentecostal. Turn to your neighbor and say, bad days make good opportunities. Come on. Come on. Bad days make good opportunities. In other words, there has never been a better opportunity for the love of God to impact the world than right now because the days are so evil. That's what we're being told. Verse 15 of, we haven't even read the passage. Let's read the passage. <laughs> Gosh, I'm all over the place today. Why don't we read the passage? That would be good. Paul writes, Ephesians 5. <laughs> Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A perspective that will make your life, a question that will save your life, and a key that will unlock your life. Bad days make good opportunities. Verse 15, 
Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. In, in other words, don't do stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't act stupid. <laughs> That's the colloquial version. Make the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. Have you ever read it that way? Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I'm not, I'm not sure we, we get this. Evil days create opportunities. The word for make the most is actually in, in the Greek one word in the New Testament. And it comes from the same root meaning as the word redemption or redeeming. And it's a word for the supermarket. Stay with me. When... Um, when we get snow in Scotland, which is rare, but when we get it, everybody panics, don't they? I mean, like the first day, everyone goes, whoa, snow, it's beautiful, and the kids want to go out and, and, and play, and then we worry about how we're going to get to work. But two days in, people start to panic. Will we ever get out? Will we ever eat again? It's like Armageddon has come, and, and the moment snow comes, you go down to the supermarket, and people bulk buy bread and milk, don't they? I mean, it's ridiculous, it's stupid. It's like people trying to buy food on Christmas Eve because the shops are going to be shut for one day and, and, and Cadbury's dairy milk because you always need that. And, 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 and because you make the most of what is available and you buy it up. That's exactly the same word here. Buy up the opportunities which are created constantly by the evil days. In other words, Paul says, I don't want you to live woolly, just blending in. I don't want you to live wimpy, just bailing out. I want you to live worthy. And he's speaking into a culture where we're highly tempted to blend in, aren't we? We're highly tempted to drink at the fountain of what everyone else is drinking. And if we're not careful, we just become a slightly more moral version of everyone else. And the interesting thing is we find ourselves just as fearful, just as anxious, just as competitive, just as insecure. And we wonder why. It's because we're drinking the same Kool-Aid. And we're watching the same stuff. And we're lusting after the same stuff. And it's not always wrong. It's just not worthy. Or alternatively, many, many Christians, rather than blend in, we bail out. We think because we're afraid of the Kool-Aid and the days are so evil that we better hunker down and get, our, get out of hell free cards and hope that the evil will not get us and the boogeyman will not notice us and Jesus will show up really soon. And it's killing us because we're not making the most of the opportunity. Here's, here's what I need us to understand. The shaking in our culture is an invitation for the people of God to do the shaping of our culture. The shaking in our culture is an invitation for the people of God to do some shaping in our culture because the days are evil. I mean, we can pretend they're not, but our culture is desperate, isn't it? Debt is desperate. We're addicted to all kinds of drugs, both illegal and celebrated. We're depressed. We're divided. But, but it's almost as if the enemy has overplayed his hand. And his intended victory has become the kingdom's opportunity. Because the days are evil. 
And, and he's overplayed his hand in a hundred different ways, and it offers us a counterattack in a hundred different ways, which provide an opportunity that we've never had before. Let, let's try this. And, and you know some of this stuff, because I've taught about it over 15 years, but his attack is extreme individualism, which if we're not careful, becomes extreme isolation. You know, it's, it's, it's all about you, and you've got to look after you, and well, it becomes extreme isolation, and loneliness becomes the biggest killer, and disconnectedness is the biggest fear in our culture. And our response to that is community, because we should do, and we can do, and we do do community like no one else does community. And that's what people are looking for and searching for and desperate for. I, I speak to people every week who, who've stopped doing church for a whole stack of reasons. That's a whole other sermon series that we could go into. Uh, for a whole stack of reasons why they don't do church and they love Jesus. And, and, and what they're doing is searching for community because the thing they miss more than anything else is connection with the people of God. They don't miss the structures. They don't miss the rules. They don't miss the times, they don't miss the models, but they miss the people of God who share everything, who speak the truth in love. Let's try something else. His, his attack is unchallenged relativism. In other words, uh, everything is relative. There is no truth. There is nothing you can stand the weight of your life on. It's your truth. It's my truth. It's whatever truth you fancy. And what it's done is it's robbed people of the beauty of truth. And, and we said the other day that if you take infinite choice in every situation which we've got in our world today, choices abound. You can make a decision every given moment of every single day and you are free to do so. But if you marry that to no absolute truth, what you end up with is lostness and chaos. And the gift of God is a blueprint for life. We got it in his word, and instead of ramming it down people's throats, what if we live it with freedom and adventure? It's exciting, isn't it? He's, he's overplayed his hand. Secularism, he's overplayed his hand. There is no God. There is just us. We are beyond God. We have no need of God. When we die, we die. But our world knows that's a lie. Because there are millions and millions and millions of people who are increasingly getting in touch with the God responder mechanism that he's placed in our hearts and minds. And we know that we were made for, by someone beyond and we know we were made for something more and we call it spirituality. And it's the greatest opportunity for the children of God since the church was born. He has overplayed his hand. Materialism. We are what we own and what we drive and what we wear. And it creates a vicious circle, a vicious culture where we always need newer, shinier, brighter, better. But what we start to own starts to own us, my precious. And it's suffocating. But here in the family of God, we own nothing. We give it away generously. We are outrageously generous with Jesus' stuff. And our ambitions are not limited by getting our kids into the right schools. And you know, actually, we might think that's sacrificial, but it begins to smell good in the nostrils of a culture that's chasing a whole bunch of stuff and is suffocating. He's overplayed his hand, people. O overt cynicism, which he's sown into our culture. We should be cynical of anybody behind everything. No one's in it for anyone else's good. They're in it for their, their, their own good. Nobody can be trusted, and there's always ugly behind beauty. But amongst the people of God, we don't run down people. We build people up. 
We don't just condemn culture. We don't only critique culture. We don't even just copy culture. We create culture and we cultivate culture and we invade every arena of culture with his love. And we don't settle for just being really good at church. We become the best artists and the best musicians. And not just Christian music and Christian art because there is no such thing. It's all art. And doctors and politicians. I, I was speaking to, I don't know if this works for you, but I was speaking to a guy who was covered, a pastor from Portland, Oregon, who was totally covered in tattoos. And uh, I'm fascinated with tattoos. I always start a conversation with people who have tattoos. And they always say, what's the story? Tell me what this means, you know, because there's, there's always a story, you know, and the, some of the stories are fascinating, well, this is my dad, and this is the, this is the journey, and this was, the, this was how, and this was when I did this, and these words mean this, and these are my kids, and, and, you know, I love those kind of stories, it starts conversations, so I always start stories with people with tattoos, and I, I said to this pastor guy, what, tell, so tell me the story, he said, no story, pal, it's just art, <laughs> I love that. I love that you have to justify it. He's just, it's just, for him, it was just, it was just art. There is the most beautiful doctors, the most beautiful politicians. We need some politicians who love Jesus, don't we? And we counter cynical with beautiful. And the kingdom comes. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but this is a perspective that will make your life. Bad days make good opportunities. The light's going to shine, you're going to need some dark. When it's dark, the light shines really bright. If the salt's going to flavor you, it's going to have to flavor something. The second thought is this there is a question that will save your life. And here's the question What's the wise thing to do? It's, I mean, I didn't make that up, it's in the Bible. Okay, what's, here it is. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, what's the wise thing to do? That's the question. Let's do that. Touch somebody and say, what's the wise thing to do? Come on, let's do let's, Come on. Look, I'm, this is called interaction. What's, what's the wise thing to do? And look, he answers his own question in the same verse. Understand what the Lord's will is. I, I try really hard to work out what that means. Here's my, best, here's my best attempt. Do life in the face of God. Do life in the face of God. How would God act? What is God doing? How would God respond? That's the wise thing to do. Not what everyone else is doing. Stop comparing. It'll rob you of life. Now, what's the wise thing to do? Not, not what everyone has always done. Stop stagnating. That's the old thing to do. Not the wise thing to do. Not, not what you feel like doing, because those feelings will lie to you and they will change. Not what even your mind tells you to do, because your mind is not as smart as you think it is. Understand what the Lord's will is and make space for his power in your life. And then Paul says something that, that may well be very relevant to us. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And, and I said last, last Sunday, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way he juxtaposes those two thoughts. Don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be intoxicated with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't get filled with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Why does he say that? Because I think because when you get filled with wine, you get out of control on wine, and you're not supposed to be out of control on wine. But when you get filled with the Spirit, you get out of control on the Spirit, and you are supposed to be out of control on the Spirit. Because to get out of your control and into his control is the only way you can be wise. You're not smart enough. Dethrone your mind. Your mind is not God. Dethrone your emotions. They are not God. Dethrone culture. It is not God. God is God. Be intoxicated with the Spirit and you will do what God wants you to do and you will live wise and you will make the most of every opportunity and your life will be worthy. See the flow of the argument? God wants to fill you and overflow you with himself. The problem is we're already full of every other spirit. of every other thought, of every other authority. We find it difficult to be full when we're already full. A perspective that will make your life, a, a question that will save your life, and a key that will unlock your life. Here's the key. This is family. That's the key. Verse 1, we are children. Verse 20, he is our father. In other words, let's, let's, let's think this through. We have a father. We all have a father. Whatever the storm that is coming at you, there is nothing coming at you that get, gets even close to the fact that we have a father. We are his children. We, we are all his children. That's our primary identity, not my ethnicity. That's not my primary identity, not my personality profile. I am not ENFP. I am not a number three, and I am not a yellow and a red, or whatever I'm supposed to be. I am way beyond all of that. Those things are probably true, but I'm way beyond all of that stuff. My, my gender isn't my primary identity. My sexuality is not my primary identity. My economic status is not my prior, primary identity. All these things are secondary identities. I am a son of the Father, and this is my family. This is not just an event we come to or a club we join, or a cause we fight for. This is a family that grows us and loves us and completes us. And I could say like a million things about this, and it's definitely a whole sermon series that could probably last six months or so. But, but on Father's Day, I want to say something about the intergenerational nature of this family. Because it's really important. It's way more important than I think we understand. Psalm 145 says this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. In other words, all this stuff is true about God. He's so incredible. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. In other words, I'll have wisdom 
to live this life. I'll have wisdom to take care of every opportunity. I'll be full of the Spirit of God only if the people of God cheer me on into the things of God. One generation will commend your works to another. We, and, and, and one generation, the older generation, will say, we made the most of every opportunity and we modeled it. We did the wise thing. We were full of the Spirit thing. See what God did. See what God did. And, and another generation will say, come on. Keep on going because if you keep on going, we get to see something which is significant of God. And the older generation call back and say, come on up because this is the way to live, to live life. And that's the way it works in, in, in family. I used to think this was just the old people pouring into the young people because that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you want, all of us want the next generation, don't we? To be freer, fuller more significant and more powerful. But actually, I think it, got, it works both ways. It's the younger generation calling out to the older generation and the older generation calling down to the younger generation say, saying, come on, I'm going to commend the works of God and the power of God to you. There is something very beautiful here that we miss if we're not careful. Submit to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. Which means this, submit to preferences. They may like it louder. Who cares? It is so unimportant, it's ridiculous. <laughs> they may like it different. Who cares? It's so unimportant, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. They're trying to follow Jesus and love Jesus and find Jesus and, and be wise and do the wise thing in a different generation. And, 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 and don't get in the way of that. Equally, slow down. Because you don't need it at that pace. They need it slower. They need it quieter. They need it different. Who cares? Because this is a family thing. Submit to wisdom. Submit to input. Slow down. You will not live lives worthy unless one generation commends your works to another. Because this is family. And it's dead easy to do the separation thing. It's dead easy to say, well, we do, we do it like this, they do it like that, they do it like the other thing, and uh, they'll have what they have, and then we don't have to compromise what we want. But isn't family all about compromising what you want? And if we fall over one another trying to give people what we think they want, surely we'll find a way to make it work. Am I making any sense? The, the, the key, the key to asking the right question and the key to making the most of every opportunity is to find yourself in a family that provokes that, that encourages that, that blesses that, that passes that on. Let's pray. There is a beautiful story of Jacob at the age of 147. It's pretty old. He's in Egypt with Joseph and Joseph's sons, and he's about to die. And he, um, 
calls Joseph to him and he asks for the sons and Joseph brings the sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, it says that he strengthened himself in bed. <laughs> in other words, he, he made one last attempt to sit up and he reached out and he blessed the generation below. And guys, that's our call to bless the generation, not to put anything in their way. And we bless them by cheering them on, by preferring what they need, by loving them well, and by wanting the best for them. So I wonder if you'd stand with me and we're gonna, we're gonna pray. Um, we're gonna pray for those who are younger than us because I think with one exception, maybe two, two exceptions, three, four exceptions, uh, everyone in the room is older than me, so I'm going to pray for, the, uh, for those who come after us. Oh no, five or six exceptions. It's good. So Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. We ask that we be wise and not stupid. In every given moment, would you fill us now with your spirit? And we pray a blessing over the next generation. Would you help us get out of the way when we're in the way? Would you help us encourage what we need to encourage? Would you help us raise up with preference those who are coming after us? And would they run further than us? stronger than us, farther than us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.